Hey, Dog Speak Geeks. Do you ever feel frustrated? Well, your dog does. Frustration occurs when an animal is interrupted in reaching their goals. Unfortunately, this occurs all too often in the modern world when a dog's goals do not align with those of their human companion. This can be a source of distress for both you and your dog, but it can also lead to the development of problem behaviors and can damage the relationship that you have with your dog. But we have answers for you. Join us for a two-day in-person seminar October 5th and 6th with instruction by Daniel Shaw. Daniel Shaw is an animal behaviorist with a background in animal behavior, psychology, and neuroscience. He will be talking about what frustration is and how it can be identified, the difficulty of conventional approaches in resolving frustration, what influences the value of rewards, as well as supporting frustrated dogs and building frustration tolerance. You can buy early bird tickets now until August the 5th, and be sure that you join us for our pre-seminar social Friday evening where you can meet Daniel and the Dog Speak team. We look forward to seeing you October 5th and 6th in Nashville, Tennessee for the Neuroscience of Resolving Frustration in Dogs seminar. Hey, Dog Speak Geeks. So glad that you guys are here with us today. I have a, a not-so-fun podcast episode, but I do have two wonderful, amazing ladies on with me. Um, we are going to be discussing behavioral euthanasia, which is something that nobody really wants to talk about, but it's something that we all should be talking about, especially if you work with dogs um, in any capacity. So um, I've got Alicia and Kim here. Alicia, I know that they've listened to you on the podcast before, but go ahead and remind our listeners who you are, what you do, and then uh, we'll introduce Kim. Yeah, well, I'm Alicia again. Um, I am currently the newest trainer with Nikki uh, in Dog Speak. And um, what I guess I've been shadowing, shadowing you for a little over a year now and teaching group classes, I've started that. And just a history of zookeeping. Um, and I'm a dental hygienist. That's my day job. <laughs> I love that. Right. <laughs> I mean, maybe we get into cooperative care in the future with, yeah. uh, you know, some Yes, I'll be doing scraping. that. I, that's kind of a big role for me. I don't know why I didn't remember to say that, but. That's because it's new. We haven't quite done it yet, but yeah, cooperative yes. care is going to be huge mm -hmm. um, with things. So, mm -hmm. um, and so Alicia is going to be talking today um, with some personal history on behavioral euthanasia. And then we have Kim. Kim's not been on the podcast before. I've been dying to get her on here, but God, she's so busy. I don't know why she's so busy all the time. Busy, 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 busy. <laughs> so, listeners, you're gonna you're in for a treat. So, uh, Kim, tell tell everybody who you are. I am Kim Rezac. I run a private rescue, and I also am um, the director of animal welfare for Animal Rescue Corps. And tell everybody what Animal Rescue Corps does, because I, I just love y'all as an organization. So we assist law enforcement in cases of large-scale cruelty where the communities can't deal with it themselves, um, whether that be a puppy mill, a hoarding case, a dog fighting ring. Um, we kind of go all over. We document and collect evidence for law enforcement so that they have a, a good, solid prosecution and um, 
and we care for the animals, get them back into good, you know, good health and get them um, some basic vetting going, um, treat any emergent issues that they've got um, and figure out who they are as and and it's not just dogs. We do all species. Um, but, but for today's purposes, um, specifically dogs, I uh, will talk about, um, but we figure out who they are, um, while they're in our care so that I can figure out the best placement for them. Um, we work with organizations across the United States. Um, we don't do direct adoptions. So we place them into these organizations who take care of their vetting and, and then get them adopted out. Yeah. And you've been with them how long? Since 2012. And because was it a new organization when you guys started? Because I had not heard of it. Yeah. Until yeah. It, around it actually formed in 2011. Um, and they had a, a case, you know, pretty quick off the bat. Um, I didn't learn about them until um, one of their people came to a, a banquet fundraiser that I was at and she talked about them. And so I, they happened to be having a training in Nashville following, I guess it was November of 2011. And in February of 2012, they held a training in Nashville that I went to a two day training, um, fell in love with the organization and their mission and, and they couldn't get rid of me since. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're lucky. Um, They're lucky to have you. And, and for those that have been listening to us for quite some time, you talk about, um, y'all have heard me talk about the damn goofy foot rescue that I can't get away from because these damn dogs keep coming in my house. (laughs) Well, that's Kim. (laughs) I'm the reason for Myers. (laughs) She is the reason for Myers. She's really the reason for Isabella as well, more so. Um, And then my mother-in-law's dog as well. So yeah, we, uh, we loved your rescue. We love you. Um, I'm just going to stop getting animals from you though. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it's, I know that when dealing with, you know, I've had to deal with behavioral euthanasia um, in my 26 years, I've not had to, I've not had to really recommend it uh, a ton. And I'm really glad with about that, but I have had to recommend it over these years of, um, of just saying, you know, there's a time when the welfare of an animal is the, the life is just not, it's not a good place for, for the dog. And we'll say dog because that's, that's again, where we are. And it's something that to see people, the look on their face when you bring it up or the look on people's faces when they find out that you're supposed to be loving dogs and, and giving them the world and doing everything for them that you would dare give up on a dog. And, and it's a really, it's like taboo. Yeah. And, and and people don't realize that it's it's more common than not, um, but it's I would say that especially in doing hoarding cases, they these these dogs just a lot of them don't have a really good start, a good solid foundation. Not to mention the the health issues mm-hmm. that are just I, I can imagine, yeah, are just out of the out of this world and. I had a one of my uh, clients up in New York was uh, fostering for this foster, and it was a little dog. And this dog had tons of health issues, tons and tons and tons and tons. And and this little dog was just miserable, biting all the time, didn't want to be handled. Was just, I mean, struggle. And it was a really difficult time. And and my recommendation to her was to talk to the rescue, and I would euthanize the dog because the dog's life 
was not a positive and with all the health issues, um, the dog's solid foundation. It would never make a good pet. It would never be happy living that way. And my recommendation was euthanasia. And, and I think that was one of those things that I think that she knew that I would tell her the, the truth with that. But, um, I, and I don't know what's happened because I'm not part of that rescue group, but, um, but it happens. And it's just something that we have to do in a way that, that we're doing it for the animal. Yeah. It's for the animal. Um, I, and I think we just lost Alicia, but I bet she'll pop back on. So hopefully she'll get back in here. But talk a little bit about, you know, you see so many different types of dogs in different cases and different scenarios. Yeah. Um, I think you're, you're right. In um, puppy mills versus a hoarding case sometimes can be a little bit different um, depending on the, the circumstances of both. But generally a puppy mill, um, they're at least keeping the dogs help. Well, I say at least, but I've seen them not but, oh. um, for the most part, those are their money makers. So they're going to try to keep them, you know, in, in decent shape. They, that means that they're interacting with them in some fashion, whether that be just plopping in some food once a day, once every couple days, at least there's some sort of interaction. Um, in the hoarding cases, a lot of times, either the people are not living there or they've abandoned them in some sort of way so that there's no physical or human contact. Um, We just did one case where the people had been out of the house for over four years and left the dogs inside, um, would open the front door and throw a bag of dog food in every now and then. Um, So these animals lived in complete darkness and, had zero human contact for four years. Dogs were born there. Um, we know that dogs died there. We found skeletons. Those dogs were some of the most shut down dogs I think I've ever seen. Um, they just don't even know. They don't know who we are. They don't know why we exist. Um, they've never seen us. They don't trust us. They don't need us. Um, they've existed on their own. They don't need us at all. So it's hard. Um, a lot of them have come around and are doing well. Um, but it, it and, and luckily in this instance, this case, um, you know, they're all placed. But but it is one of those situations where we've had dogs who, you know, are are, are dangerous, are are just not going to be a family pet. Um, luckily, like you said, we haven't had it very often. Um, and it, it is taboo. And I think right now in the industry itself, um, I think it's starting to come a little bit more to the forefront simply because there's so much overpopulation. Um, shelters are drowning. Rescues are drowning. And so we're we I say we as a collective, we are having to make some really difficult decisions and finally realizing that it's not our fault. Like we didn't create the situation. We're not, we're not advocating that every animal be destroyed. We are finally looking at the system, at the, at the system as a whole and saying, what can we do to bail ourselves out? You know? So I think that's why it's finally starting to be a little bit more talked about. Well, I mean, look at how much, you know, over the, the many years when I had first started, there were a lot of high kill shelters and, mm-hmm. um, and, and nobody wanted to take a dog to a shelter or an animal control because their first immediate 
thought as the dog would put to sleep. And, and then it went to now we're having no kill shelters. And, um, and I, and I think, and I don't have the numbers, uh, Kim, you actually might know that, but um, to where no kill shelter, you have to do a certain percentage under a certain percentage of euthanasias to be considered a no kill shelter. But I think that we kind of went to the extreme by doing this no kill thought process, because there are just some dogs that are dangerous to be put with humans and also just the welfare of the dog themselves. How miserable, like, like you take those dogs that, that were in a house for four years and you try to put them in a home with, with humans, that, that is not, that may make the human feel good about themselves, but it's not doing anything for that dog. Um, Luckily, I think in the in the case that I talked about, those dogs are doing pretty well right now. Um, but, you Love know, that that's too. not necessarily the norm um, to be no kill. You're at 90 percent live release. But I think the no kill movement has led to a lot of warehousing and a lot of hoarding situations. Um, we had a quote unquote sanctuary that you know, we had to go in and rescue all the animals from, again, no human contact, living in horrible, gross, nasty conditions. That's not a life. That's, I mean, I've always said there are far more worse things than than euthanasia. I just, I feel like if that animal doesn't have a quality of life, if living in a 10 by 10 for the next 10 or 12 years of his life, you know, being fed once a day with no, no, um, enrichment, no contact. That's not a life. Like you said, it makes them feel better. I haven't, I haven't, you know, look at all these animals I have. I haven't had to put even anybody down and we're going to let them live out their lives here. But what is that life? Exactly. And and that's where, um, you know, and whenever we have worked with a lot of rescues, but, and, and yes, you know how much I adore you, but I do love your organization, your goofy foot, because you do it right. And there are a lot of rescues that just, they want to save every dog and they don't look at, is this dog actually adoptable? Is this dog safe? Is the, is the dog's life going to be good? And, and Alicia, you kind of, kind of ran into that where you didn't have a dog. You wanted to help out. You wanted to work with a rescue, a foster, um, and, and give, you know, give this dog a, a wonderful opportunity. So tell a little bit about, tell everybody about your situation here. Well, I had been um, volunteering to walk dogs at our local uh, shelter. And when COVID hit and there was shutdown, which so many people, that's when I, they, they decided to get dogs. I thought, well, you know, maybe I can foster a dog. Um, I have a background in training. Maybe I can work with the dog a little bit. So, Hercules came up and Hercules um, had been surrendered to the shelter because he kept breaking out of the house with his family. The neighbors kept complaining, so they surrendered him. While he was at the shelter, he, I believe, swiped at one of the workers, which put him in rabies quarantine, which I believe deems him non-adoptable at that point. Um, so they reached out to the rescue I worked with and they contacted me and, and here we were. So I envisioned, oh, well, I might have this dog for a few months. Um, you know, I live, I work five minutes from home. I can come walk him over lunch. So it seemed like the perfect scenario. But within a few months, I could tell something wasn't quite right. He was an amazing dog, 
but I noticed that he liked to kind of jump and swipe at people sometimes. Or if I was standing with a group of people while I had him on a walk, if somebody approached, he, you know, might run over and nip at him. And so then you, Nikki, were recommended to me. And that's how you and I met. And you came over and we just started, you know, working through some things. Um, I know you saw him. Uh, he was could be leash reactive to dogs that were his size or larger. Small dogs he loved. So we started working on some, you know, counter conditioning towards other dogs, things like that. But there were a couple times where I remember thinking, what would have happened if I had not had a hold of him or he got through a door? I'll, I'll give this quick example. Um, I had my front door open, but the storm door, the glass door was shut. It was close to dark in the summertime. And I heard this loud noise and he started barking so aggressively. And I went running over there and there was this poor guy standing back with his arms out because um, he was trying to hang something on my door. And I said, just just drop it and walk away. And he's like, that's a great dog. Like he's yelling this to me <laughs> through the door. I think he saw this dog as very protective. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I would describe her right in this moment <laughs> as that, because I remember thinking, what would he have done if that door hadn't held? I'd never seen her like that before. And um, another case I had, you know, he, I introduced Herc to a lot of people. Um, you know, I learned the, the best way to do it. You don't get overly excited and you don't completely ignore him. You just act like it's no big deal. Um, had some family members over. My second cousin came in a little later, so I wasn't prepared to do the introduction. And because he's this loud, boisterous, fun guy, and he kept saying how beautiful Herc was, he kept yelling that. And I'm like, you know, hey, bring bring the noise level down because I could see this switch in Herc. And Herc started lunging at him, and I was holding him back, and he was grabbing his shirt, and I had to take him outside. And that was another time where I thought – what would have happened if I had, hadn't had a hold of him? Um, so that just, you know, I ended up having him for almost two years. And you know that, Nikki. I brought you out a second time. Unfortunately, what ended up happening was um, he ended up, I hate using the word attack, but that's what happened. He went after a friend of mine that had come over, and he did bite her twice. And I got him away from her. She was a, We were in the garage. She was able to run inside. But I think the part, looking back, that scared me the most is when he got away from me, he started chasing her down again. Fortunately, we both got inside and shut the door. And Nikki, before I even called you, I think deep down I knew. I knew that we were probably going to have to look at that. Um, and it wasn't just a decision, obviously not my decision to make. It was the decision of the person running the rescue. And I know that was not easy for that person. It was very hard. And I, I appreciate that she, you know, listened to what we were all saying in the end. Um, but it, it was it was very hard. The phrase I've heard a lot is 90% of the time they're great, but 10% of the time they're not. And the other phrase is he's a great dog until he isn't. It's like a switch flips is the only way I can describe it with him is what would happen. So um, it was very hard. It was very, very hard doing that. But I feel like that you have to take human life and human safety. You have to put that above the dogs. And that might not be a popular stance with some people. But I just had elderly neighbors on my street. And I thought if he gets out 
Um, I can envision what could possibly happen and I could never live with myself. Um, so that, that's, that's the gist of his story. I'm sure I'll think of more things as we continue speaking today, but, um, it was, it was a very, very difficult thing to do, but I feel like it was the right decision. Yeah. So, So. and y'all can probably imagine what Hercules looked like with his name being Hercules. Um, he was a massive dog, um, and very powerful, I just remember the first time I met him, I knew something was just off with him. But again, mm-hmm. it's one of those things you go, well, it seems off, but where did he come from? What was his life like? What's his background? What's his genetics? What does all this look like? Yeah. Um, and then when you start to work on things and doing things like counter conditioning or, you know, some self-control exercises and, of course, getting him acclimated to a muzzle and and those type things, you want to see a certain level of... Um, improvement to, to hope that your first instinct is wrong. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and I knew that with your background, that if we were going to make headway, you would be able to do it. A lot of owners mm-hmm. don't have the ability. A lot of owners are, are, they struggle just following simple rules. So when you're dealing with a dog who has aggressive tendencies or exhibiting aggressive behavior, without a, a lot of real trigger to it, often we call idiopathic aggression, it's mm-hmm. you you you're you're asking owners to become to become behaviors. Yeah. To, to become behaviors or mental yeah. health workers. I mean it's it's like yeah. But it's like what do I do? I can't I can't bring the dog home to me. I don't want to put a dog in a facility to work with it. And you know it's like what's the best case scenario and, and what can we do to help support the family? And um, and I think that's really hard yeah. for people to feel like they give up on their dog um, if if something like that happens. Yeah. Uh, it's and just, you know, oh, go ahead. It's just it's just a tough. It's just a tough thing to deal with. It it is, and you know the guilt that comes with it. Um, you know, I'm. I try to think things more on the logical end than the emotional end when it comes to things like this, because sometimes I think you have to. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we all make mistakes. Right. So I it it, the guilt I carry is when I look at how I did that particular introduction with uh, um, her name. I want to keep quiet. My friend. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I know. Like call her um, Myrtle. Myrtle will do that. <laughs> but it's it's how I did the introduction. The thing is, she she has two dogs of her own. She's a dog person. And I did the whole spiel. Okay, don't make a big deal about it. And just don't ignore him either. It's like a, hey, what's up, Herc, is the way I always said it. But what I believe happened is she was in the garage. We had opened and closed the garage door which I believe got him all excited that maybe we're going for a ride. And when I opened the door from my living room to, to greet her, he didn't know she was there. So I think I can look back at that now and go, well, did I mess that up? It's my fault. He did this. But then I thought, but then we have to look at that. We're all human. You can set up the best scenario with your dog. Like I have a fenced in yard, he's in a muzzle, but it just takes that one mistake that can be very costly to another human, to another dog. Um, and that's what I kept having to tell myself, you know, um, when I started, the guilt started coming in. Um, I think the other thing, too, is, you know, the term unicorn adopter. Maybe you guys mm-hmm. have heard that term. I hear it a lot. Oh, yeah. That one person that lives out on a farm that has 
a fenced in yard and all this land and nobody ever comes there, no delivery trucks, nothing. And I remember always thinking there's got to be that one person out there because we had a certain list of criteria for an adopter with him, you know, no small children, uh, fenced in yard. But I had him for almost two years, you know, even we couldn't find anybody that that seemed to even be interested because we had to list that. We were very open about what he needed. And I think, gosh, that he's just one of so many dogs out there that, that struggle with this. Um, and I can also, you know, I've, I've been listening to other podcasts on this and trying to do research and you realize this is not a black and white decision. You know, there's so many factors. There's cost of, if you want to try medication, there's the cost of that. There's, can you provide the physical barriers you need? Do you have kids? And where one family might not be able to handle a particular dog, another family could. But is that family available? And I think that, you know, we can't judge people that have to make this decision because they have to make the one that I don't want to say is best for them. But, but you know, not everybody has all the money in the world that they can afford to try to manage a dog like this, too. So, yeah, I, and, I just think and, we need to have a little grace for everybody that's dealing with it. Yeah, and you have to also deal with humans. They have their own mental health to work out and deal exactly. with. And, and a lot of times when we're dealing with dogs that have issues, you know, yeah, we could run some tests. We've done some things, but nobody's sticking a dog in an MRI or, you know, or a CAT scan. We can't really get a good look at the neurological aspects of a dog. And, and we just have to go with what we have in front of us. Um, and oftentimes that is months and months and months, uh, which is great. Mm -hmm. However, Kim, you don't have that time a lot. Um, I know you do have a lot of time because I know that the whole court case, those things take yeah. forever. But how do you handle looking at dogs like that and not not really having a lot of information on them? So, you know, like I said, we we do our best to figure out who that animal is and what the best placement for that animal is. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can look at them and say, OK, this dog needs a foster home. This this dog is fine to go to a shelter. Um, this one needs a trainer, this, you know, so I, I'm, I'm lucky in that sense that we've got enough time to figure that part out. When we get into situations where the dog is being reactive to people, that's a little trickier because, you know, our, our first priority should be across the board, every rescue, every shelter, our first priority should be the safety and welfare of the people around us. Um, and then, you know, and then the dog's well-being, obviously, I feel and I don't want I don't want that to get mixed up. I mean, I think that kind of goes hand in hand. But what I mean by that is if, if we're housing an animal who is is human reactive, is is having some aggression, aggressive tendencies, um, are we are we creating a safe spot for the people that are caring for the animals in our shelter? And and we did have a situation. It's been years Um it was a dog that came from a hoarding case and he, he was very reactive. He was, he was, and, and it's always, not, it's not always fair to judge them based on, you know, they just came in and who are they and are they good animals? And, you know, it's, it's a very chaotic time for them. They've gone from living in the only place they've ever known to being in a shelter where it's noisy and there's people. And so I give them time to decompress. Um, this particular dog Every time I would walk by the kennel, 
he would move his kennel trying to get to me. And I thought, okay, well, it's just me. You know, sometimes animals don't like certain people and I'm okay with that. They don't all have to like me. Um, So I would have other people go in and, you know, try to see how they, how he reacted with them. And 99% of the people he wanted to attack. I stayed late at the shelter because it's chaotic during the day. There's a lot of people there. I would stay late at the shelter, give everybody a time to decompress. And then I'd walk through and do kind of rounds and see how he was doing. And, and there was one night in particular, he moved his entire chain link kennel through the shelter trying to get to me. And that's when I said, I can't, I can't do this. I cannot safely place this animal with another organization and ask them to take on this responsibility. Um, and I, I can't put him in a home because I don't trust him. If I'm not going to bring him home to my family, I'm not going to put him in a situation where I'm, you know, putting him in an unsafe or an environment where he's going to be unsafe in that, in that home. Um, and so I did with other people recommend euthanasia for him based on his behavior. It sucks. I mean, I don't, I don't ever want to do that, but I I also don't want the liability of knowing that this animal killed somebody, you know, or harmed somebody or mauled a child, um, killed another dog. You know, it's just, it's not fair to society that we, we're supposed to be the professionals. And if we're saying, oh, I think he's okay. He'll be fine. You just have to make him, you know, put a muzzle on him. Um, We're the professionals and, and we're recommending that to a family. It just doesn't seem fair to that family. We're not setting anybody up for success in that situation. So I just feel like our, our priorities have to be safety first and, you know, making sure that we're doing the right thing by the animal. Yeah. You know, it, when you, yeah. And, Oh, oh, sorry. We must be having it. We do have a little bit of a delay, I think, happening. Sorry, listeners. Um, have a drink. It'll catch up. Um, but, but it's. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, when I'm working with owners, they a lot of them, especially with the behavior, a lot of them are, are at the end of the rope. And so sometimes it doesn't take that much to convince them that it's the right choice. When you're dealing with something like rescue um, and especially like hoarding cases and then the volunteers that are a part of that, I I can understand how some rescues would have a difficult time euthanizing a dog they bring into their rescue because they don't want to piss off their volunteers and they they don't want to lose volunteers because they're euthanizing dogs. How do you deal with that? It's really difficult. And I think that... Um, I think it's difficult for two reasons. I think that, first of all, it's something we don't talk about. You know, this whole no-kill nation is rainbows and unicorns. I mean, we want to believe it exists, but, and we've pushed it for so long. And we want to save, you know, rescuers in general have a save them all mentality. We want to save them all. We're nurturing, we're compassionate, we want to help them. Um, And so for us to admit that, here's an animal we can't help based on, you know, this animal's history or just wires are crossed wrong is really hard for us to, to, to admit because we want to fix them. It's our job. 
Um, and so when we end up having to euthanize an animal, you know, if this animal was in a foster home and we're euthanizing the animal, which knock on wood has only happened to us as a rescue once. And it was, it was awful. And this poor dog, he had a lot of other medical issues. He was in a foster home for a while. He had been adopted out, tried to bite, um, came back to us and continued to try biting. Um, you know, gave him time to decompress, did all the things we were supposed to do. And he was, he was unsafe. And so we had to make that choice. Um, it's hard because that foster didn't want to adopt the dog or, uh, uh, euthanized the dog. She had grown attached to him, but in, in, as a safety measure, he was, he was what we would list as unpredictable. There were no trigger warnings. It was just out of the blue. He would just lunge and bite. Um, and so we had to euthanize him based on that. Um, it hurt my foster for a very long time. She understood it. Thankfully we talked at length about responsible rescue what that looks like. And she understood, um, as an organization, we have lost, um, some volunteers in the past when we had to euthanize the dog that I spoke about earlier. And when I presented the question, were you willing to take the dog home? The answer was a resounding no. Okay. (laughs) If you're not willing to take the dog home, what am I supposed to do with him? Do we put him in a sanctuary? And the, the the thing was, well, you know, put take him to best friends. Best friends will take him. Well, best friends isn't even taking reactive dogs now. You know, there's just too many of them out there. So best friends has a waiting list forever. And and do we want them to go live in a sanctuary in a 10 by 10? Um, you know, there are good sanctuaries, don't get me wrong, but the word sanctuary just sends chills up my spine when I hear it because I just think of all the ones we've busted, you know, where they're just stuck forever. Um, so trying to get the vo- the volunteers to understand that this is a, re- there's, there's a reason we've done it. It's not just because, Oh, I don't like this dog. Um, you know, out of the, I'm very proud of the fact that out of thousands of animals we've rescued, our euthanasia rate is very, very low based on behavior. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I probably should have gotten that today, but um, it's very, very low. And in the time that I've been with the organization, it's been, you know, a handful. Um, And those were dogs that we met, you know, with vets. I've had Nikki come in and assess some of them um, because I don't ever want to just say, oh, yep, this one has to go. Um, I don't think it's fair for the organization or the animal for me to make one decision. So we have a team that kind of goes in and and says, okay, these are, these are the reasons. And, you know, we feel like this is the best and our vets are on that team. Um, Like I said, Nikki's come in and assess them before and bless her. She just looks at me and gives me the look like you already know what I'm going to tell you, (laughs) but I have to hear it. You know, I have to hear it from somebody else besides my brain because my brain and my heart don't always match up. And I think as rescuers, (laughs) that's the problem. Um, But when we think with our brain and not our hearts, we make the right decisions. Yeah. Uh, You know, and go ahead, Alicia. (laughs) Oh, well, (laughs) no, I was just listening to what you're saying. And I, and, you know, I'm newer in the um, dog training world, but just 
you know, listening to your perspective, I, I think it sounds like you guys are so thorough that you, you try so many different things. And I, it made me think like, you know, with, with Hercules and then Nikki, I know you probably had a point to what she was saying, but you know, we, we did try, you know, uh, what we did the saliva test, Nikki, you had recommended that to see if he had any food allergies. Well, turns out he's allergic to peanuts and I'd been making peanut butter treats for him. So I thought, okay, we'll try that. We tried CBD oil. We did counter conditioning. And, you know, I, I feel like there's always something else you can try, but when you just don't see that much, I mean, we did see a little improvement with counter conditioning, but just, you're right. There's just not a, a vast improvement. There might be a small one, but not a vast one. And when you still see that reactivity happening with no triggers, you're right. It, it, it's, it's very, very hard to, to think about having to do it, but that's where my head was going with him, with Hercules at least, is it, again, it went back to what if I make that mistake? What if he hurts somebody? I, I do think that we, we have to take human safety in, in, as priority. And a lot, of, a lot of my owners, I think they want to believe that. And they're willing to kind of say, okay, you're right. This dog's dangerous. I, I know that I, there's no way that I can manage him enough to keep him, to keep people safe um, until something happens. And then, you know, and then they're, then that guilt comes on and they're guilty and, and it's just this big snowball effect. I, mm-hmm. I think that we also have to look at though, the welfare of the animal in a situation of, I've seen dogs that, living in such anxiety that they're, they're created so many OCD issues or, or canine compulsive disorders. And, and they're just, you know, maybe they're chewing on themselves or they're constantly, you know, uh, spinning or they're, you know, they're, they're doing something that is, that, that can't be stopped by medication or training that it's, it's gotten so much to the neurological aspect of things that there's just not much we can do. And, and at that point you have to look and say, like Kim, you said, there's much worse things than euthanasia and living a life like that. I mean, mm-hmm. we've all had anxiety at some point in our lives and it's a, it's not a fun place to be. And, and we can understand why we have anxiety and we can talk to people and we can get medication and we can explain our emotions, but these poor dogs, they just, they don't understand what this feeling is. They don't understand this mm-hmm. emotion. They don't understand a lot of times what this life is truly even about. And uh, I think we have to look at that. I think, I mean, I think I always say dogs are a lot like people, right? Like we have people who could be born into the best family, gone to the best schools, you know, gone to college, had families and there's something still not right in their brain. They snap. Um, I, I, I feel like dogs are the same way. Sometimes People are just not wired correctly. And I think dogs are not wired correctly. Sometimes Um, we don't ever, again, not something we talk about, you know, is it just genetic? Is it, is it just who they are as a dog? Um, And I think that they're, we want to think that we can, you know, we've tamed them and we've made them our companions. And so we can't possibly, there couldn't be anything wrong with the dog because he's a dog. He dogs love everybody. Well, they don't. Exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. And it's the, it's the whole people say, well, you know, and this, oh, I love this one that, you know, it was around there for a while is it's all in how you raise them. And mm-hmm. honestly, no, it's not all in how you raise them. Um, they're a dog is an individual made up of individual components that are individual to the individual. And so yeah. it's like why we think that we can, they're not like a piece of clay that we can just mold into the most perfection, um, you know, item that we can have. And I, and, and I think that's why, and I love watching how we're changing in the dog training industry of, you know, when I started, it was, yes, you dominate, you're an alpha. It's all how you raise them. All dogs are good, blah, blah, blah. And now we're really getting to the depths of the genetics, getting and understanding how development takes place and, and how the brain is in development and and how that is working and how trauma in, in life or trauma even in utero can cause problems where the dog just doesn't even have the right components to be man's best friend. Um, mm-hmm. And I have a case like that right now, um, a German shepherd who's 18 months old, who as a puppy at three and four months old was lunging at people and dogs. And that's an abnormal behavior from a puppy, even if it's from like a working line. And so at that point you go, okay, something may be off on this. And the dog has since chewed its tail off enough to where it had to be amputated. It was sent to a board and train to where it basically got abused by the trainer. And now we're looking at a dog that I don't know if I can save. And euthanasia is a real possibility. Um, and you think, oh, my God, the, the trauma this dog has gone through in its short life and the brain isn't even completely developed yet. What mm-hmm. how ethically, how far do I go before I say that it's it's time? And luckily, the owners are very open and understanding and willing. They know that humans are they need to be safe, period. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a mm-hmm. hard one to go through because, I mean, I do this job because I want to help dogs be the best version of themselves. And I love I love the cases to where I have to go a little bit deeper and, and really kind of get in there. I don't love, though, when I have to look at somebody and say this dog is a danger to society and the dog is not um, does not have a good quality of life. And my recommendation is, you know, behavioral euthanasia. Uh, luckily, I've not, yeah. like I said, I've not had to do it often, um, maybe less than a dozen times. I've done it um, over yeah. my career. Mm-hmm. But I see that the way that we're doing things, um, I don't see I don't see our society creating dogs with less behavior problems. I, I kind of almost see that we are we're almost creating more issue. I feel like I'm dealing with more behavior problems now than I ever have. And I don't know if it's the way that we're raising, the way we're breeding, the way we're, we're handling dogs. I don't know. Um, but I will say that, that, I, you know, I, I take that back. I, I do think that growing up and then even in my early days of training, a lot of dogs were still outside dogs. They still were treated like dogs. They still had the enrichment and doing things that dogs do. And I think the more that we have tried to make them into a part of our family as, you know, children with fur, which they're not, I think that's where a lot of that creation has started. We've, we've stepped away from meeting their needs as a dog and we're trying to turn them into something they're not. Um, and I think that's creating a lot of the behavior issues that we're seeing. 
Um, so our job is going to be to educate like crazy uh, so that people are still allowing these dogs to be, to be the dogs and develop the way that they need to develop in order to handle life and to handle what we're what we're throwing at them on a daily basis. I mean, I get worn out just going out on a daily basis with all the information that's thrown at me all the time. And I have the brain that's supposed to be able to handle that. So it's, I think it's just more common than people are, are there and talking about. And, and, you know, I, I had a, I, you know, we do a lot on social media and stuff and I had an aversive trainer make a comment on one of our um, posts about, um, you know, because I don't use aversive techniques. Well, then I guess that those dogs are just too hard for you. And that's, I bet those are the ones you recommend to euthanize. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I was like, so you'd rather just go ahead and let's, let's put a shock collar or a prong collar on them and let's just shock them until they stop exhibiting that behavior because that'll make it better. Yeah. And that's what's happened with this German shepherd I'm seeing. Uh, It's shock collar based training with, uh, you know, prong collar and literally after talking with them, the, the so-called trainer, I'm not going to call him that because he doesn't deserve that title, abused the dog to try to stop this behavior um, instead of truly understanding that sometimes it's deeper. Yeah. Which is exactly what I was about to say is, you know, as I'm learning more and more under you, I mean, you know, we need to look at why is the behavior, why is the behavior happening? Not just how do we fix it? Cause then you're just fixing the external what you see on the external, but not why it's happening, what's going on internally. And um, I think that's so important because you can, you can help a lot of dogs out there with positive reinforcement training. And um, yeah, I, I, I kind of shocked somebody to say that about that, that, that doesn't make sense to me, honestly. <laughs> well, I mean, let's be real. I mean, aversive trainers don't make a lot of sense half the time. Um because they don't understand deeper. And I'm not saying all trainers that use aversive don't understand, but the majority of them, they just focus on the external behavior. And I mean, there's a guy now that's all over TikTok who is traveling around and he's actually coming to Nashville. He calls himself a trainer and that he's he works with aggressive dogs. Y'all, he is worse than Caesar Milan, um, where he's grabbing these, these aggressive dogs mm-hmm. on muzzles and then literally like hanging them around with the leash and just holding them or forcing the pet to, and then and basically teaching them learn helplessness and shutting them down. And then basically looking and saying, look what I did. I just fixed this aggressive behavior. And that's so dangerous because he's shutting the dog down. You're taking yeah. away all warning signs. And the next thing you know, the dog is going to explode much bigger without any type of warning. And he's going to get someone killed. And, and yet the mm-hmm. society doesn't understand it. And, and they just look at this, Oh, look at this miracle. Look how tough this guy is that he can work with these dogs, these aggressive dogs. And I'm like, wow, that is literally abusing an abuser. If you look at it, but the, but the one abuser is choosing to do it. And the other one, the dog, there's a reason why he's doing it, but he can't explain it. Uh, and, and all we can do is look at that external behavior as puzzle pieces yeah. to try to figure it out. So the amount of anxiety, if you think about it, like the dog is is wanting to do the behavior he knows, but he knows if he does it, he's going to get a shock. I mean, that's got to the, the anxiety level has me needing a Xanax right now. Like, Right. <laughs> I mean, imagine yeah. what that poor dog yeah, is thinking, you know, it's like, I can't, I want to, but I can't, I can't, it's going to shock. It's going to hurt. Uh, it's just crazy. 
You know, it really isn't. And I've got, um, I have a client of mine who had used shock collar on a, um, she had sent one of her little dogs off in shock collar use and all of this. And um, bless her, she ended up having to behaviorally euthanize one of her dogs. And uh, we're now working with her new dog and she's changed her ways and, and the dog is great. But she, she actually texted me the other day and said, Hey, I found an extra shock collar. Do you want it? And I'm like, hell yeah, I'm going to take it because if anybody wants to argue with me that the shock doesn't hurt, I'm going to offer to let them wear it and then let them feel the anxiety of walking around this world with me holding the remote control, not knowing when it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that's basically how it's used. Yeah. You know, and, and so, yeah, I think that the anxiety. Well, yeah. And, and if the dog is reacting because it's fearful of something and then it's shocked because it's fearful of something, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. It, it just, I know. Exactly. It, yeah. It's causing more fear. It's like the dog can't even express when it's uh, feeling this fear or anxiety for additional fear of being shocked. Yeah. It, well, there's actually a real study out that they did on learned helplessness. Where they would, um, and I'm not going to get all the details, I'm sure, right? So nobody judge me here. But where they would put a rat in a box and they would shock the floor. And, mm. of course, the rat would try to escape. And eventually, after the rat realized that no matter what he did, the shock wouldn't stop, he just stopped trying. Therefore, he would mm-hmm. sit there. He The floor would shock him, but he wouldn't even react. So a lot of people mm-hmm. would look at that and say, oh, well, it doesn't bother him anymore. It doesn't really hurt. No, he's in a learned helplessness state Mm -hmm. where he's just, he's given up. Basically, nothing he does makes it better. And it's really dangerous because it gives people a false sense that their dog is okay. And then they put them in situations that are not appropriate. And then the dog finally Mm -hmm. just gets to the point where it can't take anymore. And that's really dangerous. Yeah. Really dangerous. Even a small dog can cause significant damage um, and even lethal. So it's we I think we have to do a better job at communicating to people about the welfare of dogs and, and helping them to understand that sometimes euthanasia is the most humane thing to do. Um, Absolutely. Right. And, and, and educating know, people on the, the dog communication. And I think if people can understand more from puppyhood, even though I again, I know there's certain situations, their genetics, things like that, but if they can learn better how to um, enrich their dogs and let them be dogs, then we may be able to avoid some of these situations down the road with that dog is what my hope is. Absolutely. I, Cause I do think, I do think that a lot of them do learn to be reactive to a point where they, they've been reactive to so many triggers that now everything has become a trigger. Therefore nobody knows what the trigger is. <laughs> Um, exactly. And it exactly. Timing wise, it, it, I think we're in a good time to really, really, this is the worst I've seen it in 17 years in animal welfare, as far as, you know, shelters and rescues being just drowning. So I think it's a really good time for people to sit back, reevaluate, what can we do differently? What can we do better? What can we change to move forward? And so I'm hoping that maybe, um, you know, bringing topics like this to the forefront now will be more, you know, people will be more open to, to listening to it. Um, I, as you were talking, Nikki, I was thinking about 
we do shelter assessments as well. And we did a shelter assessment years ago, multi-million dollar, wonderful shelter, great people, overpopulated. So they wanted to know how, how, how can they move animals out? So we go do the assessment. We're doing these walkthroughs and I'm seeing a whole line of kennels of these dogs just spinning in these kennels, just spinning, spinning and bouncing off the walls, like repeatedly over and over and over and over bad enough. Right. But then they take us in and there is a Sally port area where they bring in their new intakes and there's a door off of the Sally port with a, with a small window, like a, a window slit in it. And I looked in and there was a dog in there. Now this dog was medically un I mean, he was a mess medically. He had Demodex and a bunch of other things going on with him apparently. Um, But I asked about him and they said that he had been there for years. Um, Well, he had been a a resident for years and they had moved him to the Sally Port to this one barricaded room with only a window slit in there to see him. He didn't get out for any kind of enrichment. Um, you know, the, the trainer would go in and work with them. You know, when you've got hundreds of dogs in your care and you've got one dog that needs extra special attention and the trainer tries to go in and work with them, you know, every now and then, I mean, imagine how well that's doing. Right. But this dog had been in this room in solitary confinement, basically, for years because he was unsafe. <sighs> and I just kept thinking, am I, I'm looking around like, am I the only one who sees this? <laughs> am I the only one who, who thinks, you know, a trazodone meatball, right. and then a, a, a nice, you know, a nice shot would make him so much more happy, yes. you know, oh my just put him out of his suffering. He's physically in pain. He's mentally in pain and we're keeping him alive to make ourselves feel better. Yes, that's exactly it. We're keeping him alive to make ourselves feel better that we're doing everything we can. And that is, it's, it's, that's where we have to change our thinking. And and I think we have to have a good balance between head and heart. I mean, because if you don't have a heart, you're not going to be doing this, Uh, but you can't lead with the heart uh, to do it correctly. Absolutely. And, you know, I think about Hercules, how much I I probably haven't expressed that yet, but I I truly loved Hercules. And, um, you know, that that was so hard because I knew just the big ball of muscle love that he was. And we had so many great times. And I I kind of said to him on that last day, I said, you know, Herc, your your life will not be in vain. And I I learned so much from you. and, And I've always thought that although I won't be dealing with the behavior cases, you know, now, Nikki, you've got somebody working with you that's lived through it. And and hopefully I could be a support maybe to somebody down the road to know what it's like to have to go through it. It's not easy, but no, but it, it takes a lot of you know it takes a lot of love to do it. If if you if you truly yeah. love it yeah. that it, that's yeah. I don't know, people think that oh we well we're gonna behaviorally euthanize a dog because we hate the dog. No. You it, it there's a there's a huge part of love that has to be yeah. there, um, and it's love to make that dog better, feel better, um, and also yeah. When you when you try right, when you try so hard to make it work, yeah, yeah. 
Well, this has been a very depressing talk, so thank you for that. (laughs) 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 We really should have done this um, over alcohol. (laughs) We should have had a lot of alcohol while doing this. Yeah, this is a five o'clock discussion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not a not eleven a.m. discussion. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know. It's not too early. To drink. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, um, so I know that. Um, so we'll wrap up a little bit. But uh, Alicia, you actually are on a couple of Facebook pages. Yes. Um, can you tell our listeners about that? We'll yes. Put it in no, show I'm notes. glad you. I wanted to bring that up. One, uh, there's two different ones. One is called Losing Lulu, and it is a Facebook page for people that have already had to behaviorally euthanize their dogs. It's a very, very supportive page. So I recommend it to anybody who's listening that's been through this. Um, And I I don't know how many people are on there now, but what, a year ago when I got on there, there were 17,000 members. So it made me realize how much more, I I don't want to say common, but how many more people have had to go through that. Um, And then the other one is... Gosh, it's we will have to put it in those. I think it's it's behavioral euthanasia, um, something support. I'll get that to you. But it's for people a decision and support that are having to go through the process of making that decision. And again, you have a lot of people on there um, who you can connect with that are going through the same thing. They were they were very therapeutic for me. Both of them were. Well, I think it's it's important to find a community that is understanding in oh, that way. It. Um, to just know that you're not alone. You're not alone in dealing with dogs yes. with behavior problems. You're not alone with sometimes having to make these tough decisions. And um, we've all had to do it. And, and I've had to, I've not just done it with clients. I mean, I've had to do it with my mother-in-law's dog and, uh, and I had, and I had to do it. <laughs> so, you know, and the, mm-hmm. and the thing is, is the dog was just as happy go lucky and was so sweet and loving all the way to the vet and, and then you have to, you have to walk out knowing that, you know, you did everything you could and it's, it's hard. Um, yeah. But we learn, we learn from each case that we do. We learn from each one we deal with. And, and I think that um, my clients are definitely going to benefit from having you on staff to say, Hey, we have support for you. Um, yeah. And, and one other thing, one other thing I'll say real quick that I noticed on the Losing Lulu page is, you know, I didn't mention Herc was a uh, American Bulldog mix. So he's a bully breed, but there was almost any kind of, every kind of breed you could imagine on this Losing Lulu page. When people tell the stories of their dog, every kind you could imagine. So it's, it's not just one particular breed or, you know, a group of dogs. Um, It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's with all, all different breeds. And sizes and yeah. I mean, there's a golden retriever on there right now. You think of golden retrievers mm-hmm. as just being the epitome of a family dog, but it's anybody. Yes, it is. Um, mm-hmm. So, Kim, where the, where yeah. can they find um, find information for you? Um, mostly, you know, because if you're looking for a dog, Goofy Foot's the only place to go. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> um, our website is Goofy Foot Rescue. Or, uh, Goofy Foot, what is it? Goofy, <laughs> Goofy Foot Dog Rescue. 
rescue.org. I don't even know. Yeah, I don't just Google it. search it know. and we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> this is what so happened. I've asked you. Goofyfootrescue.org <laughs> and then Animal Rescue Corps. And Corps is C-O-R-P-S dot org. Yeah, and if you guys are looking for um, any nonprofit to donate to um, and that you want to um, really help out with dogs, I, Animal Rescue Corps is just amazing. Y'all just do such a freaking amazing job. And the the situations that you guys go into, Lord. Um, Pretty gnarly. I, I, yeah, I just, yeah. What you deal with on a daily basis is just amazing to me. Um, it is it is not my cup of tea. Um, I've worked at an animal shelter for three and a half hours once. And then, <laughs> and then I basically went and said, I can't do this. Um, it's not for everybody, but you guys do an amazing job. And so Thank definitely a, a, an organization to support, uh, hands Thank down, you. hands down. And your, of course, your rescue. Because Myers actually came from one of those hoarding cases. Yep. He did. Yep. Um, so we, you know, because we always talk about Myers. <laughs> Because he's so damn cute. Pretty <laughs> case in West. He's very cute. <laughs> um, yeah. So next time, though, if you could, uh, if you see a little dog that could be cute for me, go ahead and give me a DNA sample for him. Because if I known he was going to be so much damn terrier, I'd be like, you keep him. You just keep him. A, a little terror. <laughs> Such a terror. Oh my god. Oh, he's like multiple hey, personalities. You. you contact me. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, and I said, what? <laughs> you want this dog? What? This is not a Roddy. I know. He's 5%. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Little did I know. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to um, chat with me, even if we are delayed and you haven't had a chance to see my face. Because, um, y'all, we're, we're recording this on the computer, and we usually have a screen <laughs> up so we can see each other, but I've... I mean, it's a version of me. It's a princess. It's just a Rottweiler princess. <laughs> but yeah, well, with a crown. <laughs> with a crown. Too. Um, that was my angel baby. With a crown. Um, so I do appreciate you guys coming on and talking with me. And, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to have you both back on. I, Kim, I want to have you back on so you can tell everybody else how to have an amazing rescue and how to do it correctly. So go ahead and start putting those notes together. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're so welcome. And Alicia, of course, thank you for sharing. I know that that's difficult to talk about yeah. and uh, and appreciate your candor on that and sharing your experience uh, with our listeners. So, and I know that you'll be back on the episode. So oh, absolutely. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, yeah. you guys, um, thank you. And uh, guys, I hope you guys, my listeners have a wonderful and amazing rest of the week. And if this was a sad episode, Go have a shot of tequila on me. You can send me the bill. <laughs>